You're listening to an Airwave Media Podcast. This episode is brought to you by Reese's Peanut Butter Cups. In breaking news, leading scientists worldwide are conducting experiments to determine if Reese's Peanut Butter Cups are the perfect combination of peanut butter and chocolate. However, it appears the study was inconclusive, as the scientists couldn't help but eat all the Reese's. Because when you want something sweet, you can't do better than Reese's. Find Reese's now at a store near you. Over 7 million different animals inhabit our planet. The thing about the kakapo, Angie, which makes it even more unique compared to a lot of birds, is, like we said, this is a big bird. What can they teach us? So researchers think this low metabolic rate has developed over time because they are flightless, right? So they don't need that crazy, intense... Many species are in crisis and need your help. Join the movement at allcreaturespod.com. Welcome to All Creatures Podcast. This is Chris. And I'm Angie. <laughs> the Kakapo. Finally, finally, finally. This has been on the list for a long time, and we finally are getting to it. For some reason, I don't know why it took this long. The Kakapo is not only the only flightless parrot in the world, but it's also nocturnal, and it's giant. <laughs> it's big. <laughs> and several other real oddities, making mm-hmm. it a weird but undeniably cute parrot. Well, we're going to learn a lot, a lot, a lot about this bird and conservation, island conservation. The thing is the kakapo is one of the most unique birds on earth, like Angie was just saying, and it's critically endangered. Today, there's only 202 total birds uh, left on the latest census of Kakapo. And there is a very focused conservation effort going on here in New Zealand to save the Kakapo. And we'll talk a little bit about that today, but they, and and we are learning a lot about trying to bring this species back from the brink that we can use uh, around the world to save some of these very critically endangered birds and, and other animals on some of the strategies they're using. So, so stay tuned. It's just going to be such a fun bird, like so many fun behaviors. Yes, Chris, the, the kakapo is a lek breeding parrot. And so we're going to talk all about leks today. And it, it's, yeah, just tons of fun facts. So yes, I hope you'll stick around because it's going to be, it's going to be a fun one. And this also has a very special place in my heart, not just because it's it's here in New Zealand and, and it's just such a, a amazing species, but this was requested by my brother, Joe, over two years ago. And I love my brother very much. There was no reason we haven't done this because I kept saying, Angie, we got to do Kakapo. Joe wants Kakapo. Uh, but my brother just celebrated his birthday. So I do want to wish him a happy birthday and dedicate this podcast to him. And we wanted to do a New Zealand species because my partner Pippa has finally gotten into the country as the borders have opened uh, with COVID. And I, you know, we haven't talked a lot, and Angie and I don't talk a lot about our personal lives on the podcast. Obviously, it's all about the animals. I mean, I do make a lot of jokes about my family. (laughs) Oh, I do. I make fun (laughs) about kids and stuff. But I haven't seen my partner in a year and a half. And her and I have maintained our relationship from afar. 
uh, worked. It's Thank been goodness very, for Zoom, right? I know, I know. Yeah, that that kept us going. It, it was very hard, but we knew we didn't know when I left her uh, back in the UK that it would be this long because we we didn't know where the COVID pandemic was going to take us. But with the Delta wave and the Omicron wave around the world, it has kept us apart. And finally, she's gotten in the country. So. The last few weeks, a couple of weeks, uh, we've been moving and back in each other's arms and I'm showing her this amazing country. So I want to dedicate this episode to her as well. Yes, uh, Pip, we love you. We're glad you're in New Zealand. Yes. And I know that she wanted us to do the kakapo as well, right? Yes. Yep. She did. She did. She did. So, uh, but Joe, this one is definitely for you, bro. I know you, I, my, he listens too. He always listens and sends, sends me text messages. Okay, oh, well, that was such a great I'll interview. have to let my siblings know that your siblings listen because... <laughs> Oh, I know. I know. Tell your sister what's going on and your brother. All right. So a few weeks ago, we had had a guest, a little known guest called Dr. Richard Dawkins. Yes. And several of my friends have emailed me about that one. Like, yeah. whoa, you go girl. All my zoology friends and mm-hmm, zoo friends. Mm-hmm, so yes, mm-hmm. uh, that was so fun. And yes, he talked a lot about the kakapo in his book, Flights of Fancy, which is available now in the United States. Um, it had a a release in the UK a couple months back, but it's finally available in the United States and you can find the information for it on our show notes because Chris and I are obviously huge fans of the book. Oh yeah, it was a beautiful book. It's an amazing book. And and he brought up this this quote from Douglas Adams who wrote The Hitchhiker's Guide to the Galaxy, right? I, which I, I've got to read that book. That's like such it's a classic. It's classic. It's awesome. Yeah, it's a classic book. All right, so, so Doug Adams said about the cockapo, said the cockapo is an extremely fat bird a good, very true. We're going to find out about that. A good sized adult will weigh about six or seven pounds. Six or seven pounds. That's we, small. No turkey. wonder they can't fly, right? Yeah, that's a very fat chicken, probably. Right? I, I oh, mean, yeah. I don't know. yeah, yeah, yeah. Or um, medium sized cat, even. Yeah, it's small, a big. It's size. a it's a big bird, and its wings are just about good for waggling a bit if it thinks it's about to trip over something. But flying is out of the question. And this is where Richard Dawkins came in and gave this quote. Sadly, however, it seems that not only has the kakapo forgotten how to fly, but it has forgotten that it has forgotten how to fly. (laughs) So it can't fly. This bird cannot fly. Apparently, a seriously worried kakapo will sometimes run up a tree and jump out of it, whereupon it flies like a brick and lands in a graceful graceless heap on the ground and it's douglas adams fell in love when he saw the kakapo uh many decades ago when there was not many left on earth this bird is not graceful (laughs) yes it does it parachutes to the ground i was gonna say they have a term for that behavior called parachuting which yeah i feel like a parachute would be a little bit more graceful but (laughs) not the kakapo no this thing this thing is the cutest Oh, cutest oh. thing, Angie. It, it just really quick. I just want to say thank you to our Patreon supporters. I'm going to make this really, really quick because we have a very long podcast to go. Your support means the world to us. Now that Pip's in the country, we're going to be coming out with some some more things. I think Angie and I, I'm, going to, I'm just going to put it out here now, Angie, so we can commit to it. Angie and I are going to try to do a live each month with our Patreon followers. 
just to have a one-on-one or just, just a Q and a where they can come on and talk to us over zoom. Let us know some species that they want us to, to, to do and get more intimate with that. So that that's coming now that Pip's in the country and I, the cavalry has arrived uh, to help me with the boys. <laughs> so, um, but describe this, this bird, this darling. amazing, beautiful, so darling. Yeah. Parrot. Well, Chris, I think the best way to start with a kakapo is just looking at it straight on. It has this round facial disc of feathers that look like an owl. In fact, some one of its nicknames, or uh, it's also known as an owl parrot in some places. And then within this disc, there's a little bit of a coloration pattern because it's lighter colors around its face being like a cream, yellow, light brown, tan color feathers. And then... Most of its plumage, most of its feathers throughout the whole body are green in color with a little bit of dark brown splotches in them and some yellow to tannish highlights. But around the face is this little bit lighter tan to yellow color. And then it has a very distinctive wide patch of feathers that are green that run down um, the middle of its forehead, almost looking like a wide mohawk, if you will. And then running down the throat and the breast, the kakapo's feathers are going to be soft, also this molted yellow-green color as well. But it's the bill that really strikes me for the kakapo. Mm -hmm. It's chubby. I don't know. It's not a very scientific definition, but very distinctive. And uh, I, th- I think if you just, once you see a kakapo's face, you'll, you'll never forget it because it's just so distinct. Uh, they also have pretty large feet, uh, typical parrot feet being that there are, they're, they're like scaled and they have two toes facing forward and two toes facing backwards. And the claws are really strong. We'll talk a lot yeah. about that in behavior because they do a ton of tree climbing, even though. Uh, they can't fly. They spend a lot of time in the trees. Sometimes they parachute down, but most of the time they climb down. Mm-hmm. So really distinctively big feet and claws compared to other owls. And then lastly, I have to mention their whiskers. So the beak is surrounded by delicate feathers that look like or act as whiskers do on a cat by Bracier. And researchers aren't sure why they developed this, but they think it's because they're mostly nocturnal and it helps them sense things on the ground, but completely unique for a parrot and even for birds in general to have this, uh, this whisker like uh, set of feathers around their beak, which are really distinct and also make the kakapo just darling and very cute in my opinion. It's very unique. It's a very unique looking uh you know, parrot. It just, it just is. It's, it is so charismatic. That's why I think people I want, fall in I've love been, with it. Yeah. I know, Chris, and I've been lucky enough to work with a couple different species of flighted parrots. Mm-hmm. And just looking at this face, I'm like, I need to know one. And the more I research <laughs> cockapos, and you'll talk a lot about this in conservation and how there's not very many of them and they are, uh, it's wonderful. The New Zealand government's doing a great job monitoring them and working with helping their breeding programs so uh, they can be successful and reproduce as much as they possibly can in a safe way. But some researchers have mentioned that working with them and knowing the animals that they have huge personalities. Yeah, they do. Which, (laughs) I mean, that's very normal for people that work with parrots or birds Mm -hmm. in general. Uh, But yeah, just looking at this headshot, I need to know a kakapo. 
That's yeah. that that's the Cliff Notes version. So I, and I, I definitely that's your see job. Them. You're in New yes. Zealand. You gotta you gotta do it, buddy. I know, I know. You told me because it's like, oh, I want to get you down here around Christmas time. You're like, oh, I don't know. I'm like, well, what if I have a cockapo at the at the zoo yes. nearby? Yes, a hundred percent. Yes, <laughs> okay, on your way. It's all right, John. <laughs> you get the kids. I'm on my way to New Zealand. Uh, I mean, seriously, like I really I. I added to my bucket list and it probably won't happen, but when I get to lecking behavior and what the males do to congregate and what they do to attract a female, I mean, that ha- the researchers that get to study that is just, I, I want to be one of them in my next life. Or right, if you're out right. there listening and you study parrots, like study kakapo lecking behavior, you're welcome. Okay, so we will just, I will tell Jesse, because Jesse, I, I was going to mention this at some point. Jesse was going to have an opportunity. I don't know if he's going to take it or not in the next, I think, six to eight weeks uh, to go down to Codfish Island and work there for two weeks and see Kakapo, because we're going to talk about here in a second where they're, they're located. Because again, only 200, over 200 left on Earth, and that's it. And they are very uh, protected here in New Zealand. A uh, team of researchers are protecting them, studying them, breeding them. And so Jesse had an opportunity uh, to go down there. And, and, and if he doesn't go this round, he's definitely going to go the next time uh, they're able to do that. So I will get you with Jesse and say, Jesse, how do you how do you get on that project? And, and we'll get you here. Everybody needs done. an assistant or an intern. Yes, it does. Somebody needs to cook. So that's right. That's a, it's like you go down there and work, and they'll they'll take you around. So the thing about the cockapo, Angie, which makes it even more unique compared to a lot of birds, is like we said, this is a big bird. They can stand up to two feet, up to sixty-four centimeters. I mean, that is a big parrot they weigh the males can weigh up to eight pounds anywhere from four to eight pounds or up to four kilograms the females much less i mean there is some sexual dimorphism there where the females are only two to three pounds not quite as tall or big but they they were called the world's fattest parrot you know (laughs) every i like chubby (laughs) it's official they're the world's fattest big bone that's what that's what my mom used to say about me oh honey you're just big boned you you're like a waif oh my god you were running athletic yes you were were not big boned you are a waif i think medium Uh, bone no i think i am definitely medium boned but it's good it makes me it makes me strong no you're tiny and anyway (laughs) compared to me you are tiny on average, they weigh about 14 more ounces or about 400 grams than a flying parrot. So because the the, the largest flying parrot, which is uh, the hyacinth macaw. Mm-hmm. So these birds, and this is what's so interesting about their story, is they live in very cold parts of the world here in New Zealand. Uh, today, they you know, most of them live just off the South Island. Uh, you know, islands off the South Island of New Zealand. And so they've evolved to lose this ability to to fly. So they're still like a a species in transition in evolution that, you know, they still have wings like Kiwi. When we talked about flightless birds, the Kiwi still has nubules for wings, right? But they, they don't have a flappy wing like the cockapo does. So the cockapo is still in transition to this ground dwelling animal. But, you know, that's why I think they get so heavy is because they put on so much fat. And we're going to talk about that to survive in these cold environments. 
So when you look at their range, the historical range of kakapo was all over New Zealand. Right. North both, and South Island. Yeah, yeah, both islands. Yeah. Yeah. But scientists were not able to really document them until the Europeans got here in the mid-1800s. So before the Maori, which we've covered in, in many New Zealand animal podcast and i actually have a special guest i hope you know i'm I'm organizing an interview i should be able to talk to him this week to talk more about new zealand natural history and you should look for that in the next couple weeks uh, if everything goes right but before the maori got here about 800 years ago kakapo were everywhere moa were everywhere Uh, flightless you know almost like an ostrich you know elephant birds bigger but the moa was one of the world's largest birds. The host eagle, which was the largest raptor ever to live, was roaming. Plus, I think about another 30-something bird species. Then the Maori came, the Polynesians came to New Zealand, incidentally brought Pacific rats. And these Pacific rats, which I'm going to talk about here in a second in conservation of the kakapo, is devastating to flightless birds or birds that are ground-dwelling. So kakapo were probably everywhere, you know, probably running around where I live now. But when they started taking census, there were pockets of them in the North Island. And then on the western side of the South Island, because remember, New Zealand's like a thousand islands, but the two main ones, the North and the South Island. So the South Island kakapo were were pretty much everywhere uh, in the 1800s. But over time... That diminished until the 1970s and 80s. They were completely eliminated on both uh, islands, the North and the South Island. All right, today, so those 200 kakapo are on three islands. So you have Codfish Island, which is the big one. There's the Little Barrier Island. So the Codfish Island and Little Barrier Island are south of the South Island. So... A lot of north and south. I'm sorry. <laughs> this is confusing. Well, we just have to remember the further south you go in New Zealand, the colder it gets. Oh, God, yeah. You're, you're sub-Antarctic. I mean, you're right. getting to sub-Antarctic. So the, the South Island, which was like Rohan and Lord of the Rings, we have the fjords, we have the glaciers, very beautiful. Bio. Now you're just showing off. <laughs> <laughs> That's, I, I live in the Shires. So I'm in North Island. So on the south of the South Island, it's it's – Sorry, it's Anchor Island and Codfish Island. Codfish Island is where I think most of the the kakapo are. Then near Auckland, near me, is the Little Barrier Island. And there are uh, a small population there too. So that's it. They live on these three little islands. And, you know, they're they're naturally want to live in these dense native forests that we have here. But with human expansion, not much of that's left. So. And when were they transferred to the islands? Was it was it in the eighties, right? Yeah, yeah. I'm going to go into that here in a second and talk about okay. how they were transferred there. the The last remaining population, uh, because in the 1970s, uh, there was only was it by the 1970s there was only 18 kakapo that they they knew about, and they were in the fjordlands, which is like the the glacier bay and all that stuff we have here, and they were all males. So, and I know you're going to talk about that, but they thought the species was heading towards extinction. They're like, there's nothing we can do. Then on Stewart Island, which is south of the South Island, it's sub-Antarctic near, almost sub-Antarctic, Stewart Island in the late 70s, they found a population of a couple hundred of them with females. 
And that's the only reason they're, they're left today. So it's incredible. Yeah. yeah incredible conservation efforts. Um, yeah. Oh yeah. 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 And they've been moved to these predator free islands. Right. So, well, that's what I was going to talk about next. I mean, why care? Right. I have a million reasons, but yes. <laughs> <laughs> Do you want to list some of them before I go up? I mean, just, well, their conservation story yeah. and just their incredible physiology and their unique niche as a parrot, as a flightless parrot, and how they were doing just fine. I mean, looking at some of the literature about uh, even when European settlers came over here, I mean, they were everywhere. They said that you could like shake a tree and they would just fall out of a tree, any tree, pick a tree. And also how for the Maori, the kakapo was so culturally significant and still is uh, for the indigenous people of New Zealand. Uh, it was really important uh, source of food and then feathers. And I mean, obviously they don't have that anymore. Uh, it's just, I mean, it's just, it's a real shame that their numbers dwindled so heavily from the introduction to all these different uh, unwanted predators. Well, yeah, one of the big ones is the stoats. When they brought rabbits, uh, the Europeans brought rabbits with them, let them loose. And we still have rabbits. I see them, you know, at the Hamilton Gardens where I live. And they they brought stoats and weasels to control the rabbit population. But unfortunately, those stoats and weasels have just decimated the flightless birds, the kiwi <laughs> And it's so interesting that yeah. you mentioned rabbits because um, one author I was reading su was suggesting that uh, before this this mass extinction of the kakapo, that they they were the most successful herbivore in the New Zealand islands, mm -hmm. and that they they were like the rabbits of uh, you know like of New Zealand, right. uh, how how rabbits are to North America. I mean, just yeah. they were everywhere, yeah. and then to go to to have a population less than a hundred or whatever it is, they actually ended up uh, moving and protecting. Yeah. And, and yeah. Saving. yeah. And they brought the stoats. The only reason they brought them in was because the rabbits were like uh, eating up all the sheep pastures. <laughs> it wasn't for the kakapo. It was like, Oh, in the 1800s, Oh, our sheep can't eat. So let's bring these things in to control the rabbits that we brought in. And it was like in Australia, you know, the rabbits are the number one uh, problem over there of invasive species. Well, Angie, you know, continuing on with, with the kakapo and the islands, islands are extinction epicenters, and there's a lot of studies out there, you know, less just, just under 10% of all the extinct or animals heading towards extinctions are coming from islands, you know, where it's just a mass, it, these small concentrated areas, when you introduce the rats and snakes at Guam or some of these other species that don't belong there, they are devastating to the, the Galapagos Islands, you know, the goats and stuff. Well, there's nowhere for the yeah. animals to go. I mean, yeah. and arguably like the kakapo, and I know you talk about this in evolution, but they did a great job millions of years ago when they were like, hey, we are flying parrot, but we're competing against other flying birds. So here in New Zealand, and so maybe it's just better if we stick to the ground, right? Yeah, yeah. So, but then now they're on the, you know, and they were safe on the ground because there weren't those predators there. Yeah. So, yeah. 
No, well, they had. That's good. That's a great point because what they did, yeah, they they did very well. They found their niche. Millions of years ago, they were flying, but they lost that ability to fly because, like you said, they became these herbivores on the ground. The only predators they really had was like the New Zealand falcon, the host eagle, and I think there was a couple others that are now extinct of raptors that hunted during the day and hunt by sight, right? And the kakapo blends mm-hmm. in very well, these dense forests. So the kakapo evolved to be nocturnal and ground dwelling where in the forest where these raptors had a very, very difficult time finding them. But when you brought in stoats and rats and weasels and possums from Australia, not the American possum, but not the America opossum, it's possums from Australia, they, they find these kakapo nests easy. You know, they hunt at night. They That's when the kakapo is busy. The nests stink, so the mammals can find them. They go in and kill the chicks, eat the eggs, or even take down an adult uh, uh, kakapo. So that's where, like, they completely disappeared on the North Island by the 1930s. And then, like we said, the South Island in the 1980s. So when they did find the, these birds on Stewart Island in 1977, that is when okay, we have a population we can save. So New Zealand started in the 1980s and 1990s to transfer the known birds to Codfish Island, which is off the coast of Stewart Island. And that's because Stewart Island had a population of cats that were devastating to native kakapo. So we do have a problem with feral cats here, like everywhere in the world. Of course. Yeah, Mm -hmm. they're, they're really... Uh, devastating. So what New Zealand has done, and and they're leading the world in this effort, is they're going, because we have so many islands and so many small islands and atolls and everything off our coast, is we're going and eliminating all of the pests that and, and the invasive mammals on there to keep them pest free or predator free, you know, pr- free from mammalian predators. And what they've done, and, and I hope to Uh, talk to my guests, up and coming guests, talk about this a little bit more in depth, is take our endangered species and stick them on these islands that do not have any predators. Now, we still have problems, though. It's funny, like this one island off uh, Auckland, I forgot the name of it. I climbed it. It's like an extinct volcano. They, it was pest-free, but now all of a sudden they found evidence of like three or four stoats on there. And they don't know how they get there. Oh, geez. Like, how do they get there? Are they Because they are tourists coming back and forth. It's not tourists bringing them in. It's, are, are they, they swimming on those? Or, or, boats? Are they getting on the boats? Are they yeah, swimming? Or yeah, rafting. Yeah. Right, but was it a, isn't it the like the, the vegetation raft yes. we talk about? Yeah, mm-hmm. yeah, yeah, yeah. We did. We did. So, so it's an ongoing battle. And... Uh, one of the great episodes we did, I still, I know this is so long ago, but episode 49 is such a good listen if you're really interested in island conservation and, and what New Zealand's doing and other organizations. But I interviewed Theo Van Nort and it was sub-Antarctic Conservation on the Antipodes. This is a well worth a listen, very interesting interview. He was on the last trip there in 2018 uh, to to confirm it was between 2017 and 2018 that all the mice and rats were eradicated on this island because it was devastating to native birds nesting and native insects and other species 
So they, New Zealand and WWF and uh, others like, you know, went and eliminated these pests on the Antipodes. And we're doing this all around New Zealand and, it, and it's working, it's working, it's working. So very well worth uh, the listen. So the goal is to create these island sanctuaries. So right now, New Zealand, you know, 117 islands off our coast have been declared pest-free. And they're still working on some others. But like the Tuatara, we talked about that. Oh, they're extinct on the mainland. Mm-hmm. They're except certain protected areas. I've seen them. I've told you that. I've seen Tuatara uh, in some of these protected areas. Yes, he sent photos. It was awesome. Yeah. yeah so, uh, you know, they're off all on these islands, uh, you know, surviving and their populations are going up. So that's what's keeping the kakapo safe and healthy. And, uh, you know, we'll try to get Angie down there so she can go look at some of this lacking behavior. And the rumor is kakapo might be coming to the mainland New Zealand in the coming years because the islands are burgeoning with kakapo and they're looking for places to move them to increase uh, size. So like Sanctuary Mountain, where I've talked about plenty of times on this podcast in the New Zealand episodes, it's just about 45 minutes south of me is one of the world's largest pest-free, has predator-proof fencing all around. I saw kaka, which I'm going to talk about here in a second, which is the relative of the kakapo, uh, which is a New Zealand parrot. Amazing, amazing. So when you do come here and visit, I'm going to take you guys there, you and John, and we'll go hike around. I love it. Yeah. So, you know, that's just kind of a snapshot of what's going on with kakapo and kakapo conservation and like I said, New Zealand is doing an amazing job leading the world, one of the leaders in the world in island conservation. You know, we're trying to get rid of all of these stoats, weasels, rats, possums by 2050. You know, I see bait boxes all over the place. I go out to conservation areas and where they have baited, where they have eliminated or reduced populations of predators, a lot of the native birds are coming back. Uh, like the tui is a big one. That's a that's a good species that that's coming back. I my old house I just moved out of. I heard a tui for the first time in two years, uh, squawking. They're really unique unique bird to New Zealand um, because they're they they're doing well around the gardens, and I think they were radiating out. And so when you see these native species rebounding, it, it it's a good story. It's a really good story. Absolutely. Mm-hmm. All right, so I'll keep talking because I can talk because I got to get to behavior and repro because there's so much cool stuff for Angie to talk about. It, talking about their evolution, the Dracula parrot, I think it was the last parrot we did back in October. So that was a good, what, eight months ago? Mm-hmm. Yeah, last it was a parrot. a fun one, though. Yeah, yeah. So birds, over 10,000 species. Uh, the order of parrots is Cetaciforms. Did I say that right? Uh, no. No, uh, I did not. It's citizen. I don't have it in front of me. Citizens. Uh, They're citizens. Yes, thank you. Yeah. Okay. Citizen forms. Of our borders are like, oh I my know. God, I apologize for for <laughs> me for being lazy and not having it on my screen and Chris for his enunciation. <laughs> <laughs> I butchered it. I butchered it. Citizens. I remember you telling me that years ago. I, I want an expert. Okay. Uh, almost 400 species of parrots. Right. And then, yeah. 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 And then we talked about you had the true parrots, the cockatoos, and then the New Zealand parrots in orders. So the the Cytocodia, true parrots, the cockatoo, 
cockatoos, and then the stringopodia is the New Zealand parrots. Fun family. I I know I bragged about the Kia when we, we were talking about bird intelligence because the Kia is seen as one of the world's smartest birds. It was yes, really, we talked a lot about that. Yeah. I think in, in our even in parrot episodes. Yeah, in the crow episode, we talked kind of about that. The Kia is the only alpine parrot species on earth. So that's what's, we'll have to cover them at some point. And then you have the North and South Island Kaka, which they're endangered. And I did see them. I've seen them flying. I I think I told that story. I walked around a, a corner and I scared one out of the tree. I think I put that on Instagram. But now that Pip's here, we'll be getting busy on Instagram again. And I'll try to post that video again. But it was so cute. I turned the corner, scared the heck out of it. Because I was like face to face with it. It falls out of the tree almost or falls upside down. It's squawking mad at me. And I just was filming and backed up, but the kaka was beautiful. And then you have the kakapo, which is critically endangered. So the genus of the kakapo is, is string, string, uh, strigops, and their species name is strigops habroptilis. So that's their species, the only species in their genus, and the only, obviously, species in their family. Kakapo evolution, I mean, birds emerged 160 million years ago. The oldest parrot dates back about 80 million years ago from a dinosaur relative. Uh, Some of our oldest fossils are coming from Denmark around the time when the dinosaurs went extinct. And the old world parrots, as we know them today, was emerging maybe about 60 million years ago, like after the dinosaurs went out. And that's when... The species that did survive, like parrots or some of these birds, they were able to boom because the dinosaurs were gone, right? Right. And Mm -hmm. they were able to find food and breed and not be preyed upon. Like mammals, they just boom, radiated out. And that was from Australasia. So that's where parrots came from. And then the New World parrots emerged about 50 million years ago. And the closest relative to parrots are the passerines, which are songbirds. So the the specific evolution of kakapo is interesting, Angie, because I don't need to go into New Zealand that much because there's other episodes where people can, can listen and learn more about it. But basically, New Zealand broke off 85 million years ago, uh, just a small bit of island and sticking out of the ocean that eventually became this major landmass. And I think New Caledonia is also part of us, uh, Zealandia. So the Kakapo diverged from the Kia or Kaka lineage about 60 million years ago. So wow, these animals yeah. here in New Zealand, we've been isolated for That's millions what, and millions of years. When we talk about why care, just yeah. so unique and on their yeah. own path. And, yeah. Uh, I mean, yeah. I know we talk a lot, oh, they're weird. And this is, they, yes, they are different than a new world parrot. Uh, but, but they're there's ancient. good reason for it. And they've been doing it, perfecting it for a long time. They're ancient. They've been on their own for 80 million years almost. 60 to 80 million years. With their we little whiskers know. and yeah. their fat feet. Mm-hmm. Well, well, they weren't in that form yet. But they were, I know. you know, they were flying <laughs> yeah. around. But then they they split they off from the Kia. Mm-hmm. And then they did, like, like you've talked about. And I think right now we're seeing the... If we let evolution keep going for another 10, 20 million years, you're seeing a bird that's eventually going to be this fat little parrot with no wings, like a kiwi walking around, you know, Mm -hmm. doing its thing. But with us, who knows, with us banging in there in the picture. But you're right. They are ancient. They are ancient, ancient, ancient. 
And just to, to leave off before we jump into some physiology facts and then we can get to behavior and repro, I'm going to delve into this a little bit more, but I want to introduce this study here. And it was deep macroevolutionary impacts of humans on New Zealand's unique avifauna. As it was recently in Current Biology 2019. And I, I want to delve more into this study later and maybe talk about this at a later date, not just for New Zealand, but for other places around the planet. But the authors concluded from the study that nature would need at least 50 million years to return to the number of species that were present in New Zealand before humans arrived. Wow, that's a very impactful number. Years, Yikes. yes. Because Yikes. of all the species that Thanks, have gone humans. extinct. Yeah. Mm-hmm. And, you know, and, and, and I'm going to talk to uh, my guest here. The Maori did cause some extinctions. I mean, the Moa went extinct. Host eagle went extinct. Some other species went extinct because of these specific rats. Then the Europeans came, and then that really caused a big impact. You know, where the cockapos almost extinct, all these other, the kiwis almost extinct, like because of human pressure. So you would need to remove humans from New Zealand, and it's going to take 50 million years to get back to where it was 700 years ago before humans stepped foot here. That's insane. And then they said if you let all these species go extinct, like the cockapo, or, you know, m- many species of kiwi, it, it, you'd add 10 more million years to that. So I just I was very surprised at the the long term impacts, how long it would take to restore diversity, because of human impact on the planet. So you know, anyways, that's why we do this. That's why we educate. That's why you listen. Put fire in your belly, like okay, what am I going to do today to to help the planet? Well, absolutely, Chris. I think you made a very great case about why we should care about the kakapo. And I think that I have a fire in my belly after reading their conservation story and then looking at their face. Yeah. Uh, and, the, and then after that, just learning about all of their really cool physiology and just how unique they are. Like it doesn't stop with, okay, they can't fly in their parrot. Mm-hmm. Uh, there's so much more. They're whiskers. Uh, there's so much more. And so, well, and it was really shocking to me, Chris, that they are probably the longest living parrot. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Lifespans of up to 100 years, some yeah. researchers think. Yeah, 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 yeah. I yeah. mean, we know that parrots live old, so that's why I'm, I'm always very hesitant to encourage anybody to get a parrot as a pet um, or really any bird for that matter, but do your homework because (laughs) (laughs) uh, you might be putting your, your parrot uh, in your will. And so you have to think if that's the most fair thing for them. Uh, But yeah, that that was super fascinating, right? I mean, just so much with these guys uh, as far as just fun facts. And we can learn from them. I mean, you and I, in the Dracula parrot, we talked about it, is parrots live a lot longer for their body size and metabolism compared to any other species on Earth. And they're studying the genetics of them and that that the parrots have special abilities to re- repair DNA, slow down cell death, you know, to stress all this stuff and cancers. We have so much we can learn from them. So well, much. Oh, absolutely, Chris. And the, the kakapo is no excep- exception. In fact, their metabolism, they're, they're like, <laughs> they have a very low basal me- metabolic rate mm-hmm. and much lower than any other parrot species. Yeah. 
And so researchers think this low metabolic rate has developed over time because they are flightless, right? So they don't need that crazy intense uh, metabolism to get those pectoral muscles firing for the flight. Uh, but also compared to flighted birds, the kakapo, even though we're talking about them often being chubby, because uh, they can be uh, when their food is plentiful, but they can also survive on very low quality food or little food sources uh, and still survive. And that's partly because of this low metabolic rate. And when I talk about their breeding behavior, we'll find out that the males are incredible and they don't eat <laughs> until yeah. they uh, breed up and down the river as many females as they can find. <laughs> yes. And so, but so yeah, just really, you know, really fascinating uh, physiological ad adaptations. Well, it's like, you know, it's like the tuatara, which is a, a completely unique uh, reptile. It's not a lizard. It's a reptile. We just, we laughed about that a couple weeks ago. It, the kakapo, you know, the tuatara has a very, very slow metabolism. This is a, this is a reptile that loves the cold, lives in the cold, survives in the cold. Here's a, here's a parrot that, you know, we do have some tropical like birds living in the sub-Antarctic. We have a thing called like the Antipodes parakeet. Which is living in the Antarctic. I mean, some Antarctic islands, it's freezing cold. So the kakapo, you know, that's why it's so fat. <laughs> it's, it puts on so much fat. Which leads me to my next point. You know, talking about them not being able to fly. Again, you're, you're, you're seeing this transition. So their wings don't have muscle, but have instead, that's where they store fat. And like you said, the slow metabolism allows them to store fat off plants. Which we know as scientists, you know, do with nutrition, plants don't have a lot of fat. I mean, you know, there's not a lot of fat or extra calories. I guess there's a lot of starch and sugar, but so it'd be interesting to study their metabolism, how they, they store that as fat. But the other thing was, you know, we talk about birds and the keel. You know, which is their modified the breast. Yeah, their modified breastbone. Yeah, which we see in like turkeys, you know, in America. Sure, very we, prominent. Yes, or even in chickens where uh, that keel is where the flight muscles attach and mm -hmm. allow birds to fly. Uh, the, the pectoralis. Yeah, the, mm -hmm. the, the cockapo lost that keel. Mm -hmm. So they have no, nowhere where any flight muscles can, can attach. And then you talk about their feathers. So you're right, the Maori. Kakapo actually Maori means night parrot. I meant to say that in the beginning. And, and very good point. They're they're very important uh, culturally, the cultural significant to the people here. And their feathers were very important to them. So the, the kakapo feathers are much softer than birds that fly. You know, they're not stiff, they're they're soft like downy feathers that keep them warm. So yeah, it's just oh, they're fascinating, Angie. Like yeah, well, and their vision is really good. Their mm -hmm. sense of smell is very good, uh, which are important adaptations if you are going to be a nocturnal animal, right? Mm -hmm. um, vision is obvious. And of course, the kakapo stands out even with their sense of smell compared to other birds. It uh, has a very large olfactory bulb. Mm -hmm. um, and the ratio of the olfactory bulb to the brain is very large. And it indicates that much larger ratio compared to other parrots that it has a great sense of smell. Yeah. Uh, and then on the flip side, the kakapo also secretes a very distinct smell and it's been described as a musty sweet odor. 
So I need you or Jesse to <laughs> sniff you, a Kakapo. You're going to go. You're going to do it. You're going to Put go it in a jar a and mail it to me so I can smell a Kakapo, darn it. We got to get uh, to New Zealand somehow. So Yeah. Uh, and so, but it's supposedly very, very distinct. And mm-hmm. in fact, a researcher suggests that unfortunately this distinct odor uh is helpful for all these predators that were introduced to the islands and making them very, very easily hunt, you know, hunted. Uh, In fact, I think uh, uh, hunters would even train dogs uh, hundreds and hundreds of years ago to be able to, to smell them out and find them. And, and you know, they they were so vulnerable to that. that, Like they didn't know it was coming. I looked into it a little bit. I'm not sure what the evolutionary reason would be for this musty sweet odor uh perhaps breeding purposes but i'm not sure uh but it has not served them well that that that's true well is it like yeah, that's how they find each other and you know but yeah i mean it's 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 the predators have just devastated things here angie i see it i hear it i read it i'm living it here it's like we uh, there's bait everywhere yeah you know, they're just, I'm living in this place on earth where and you're living in Florida. I mean, you have, gosh, you have Burmese pythons. And, well, we not have in your everything. Backyard, but. I mean, my goodness. <laughs> I think I saw Tegu the other day. I'm like, this is, it Talk ran about really invasive species yeah. across this country road. And I'm thinking that looked pretty big. Yeah. Uh, maybe it was a young alligator. I don't know. Anyways, maybe, that's a different maybe. pod for a different. Yeah, day. I know, I know. You're you're in, you're in, again one of the parts of the world where it, it's really it, invasive species is really devastating native wildlife. Now, before we get to behavior, really quick, like Angie said, kakapo herbivores entirely vegetarian. They eat ferns and bark and roots and bulbs and fruit and seeds and leaves and who knows what they were doing for the environment. Being environmental engineers, you know, in the North and South Island. Uh, you know, what we're missing, uh, but their diets do vary seasonally. What's going to be interesting when Angie gets to repro is in Southern New Zealand, they breed only when the Rimu f- trees fruit, which I think Jesse's pointed out a couple of times on a couple of our hikes. Uh, yes. I need photos or it's a pine. It's a species of pine tree. Yeah. I'll ask them. Uh, mm-hmm. I'll ask them next time we're, we're out burdened together and say, Hey, just find me one of these and, and I'll take pictures. Uh, but the only fruit once every two to four years. So, if that's when the cockapo is supposed to breed and they're only breeding when fruit's abundant. So obviously there's going to be some biological significance to that, that, that mm-hmm. triggers uh, hormones, maybe fat deposits, leptin, who knows what the mm-hmm. scientists are looking at uh, that will trigger them to breed when, when seeds are, you know, if certain fruits are high and nutrients, things like that. Yeah, I loved it. I was reading about the cockapoos nutrition and uh, they forage, right? Because they're an herbivore. And uh, you can always tell when a cockapoo has been foraging because they leave like half moon or crescent shaped wads of fiber, uh, a, a vegetation behind because they only pick out the good parts of whatever plant or seed or fruit that they're eating. They don't like all that fibrous material. Which may maybe might help answer that question about how they are able to get f- so f- fat off of a um, you know strictly herbivore diet, and so maybe if they're not consuming as much fiber. But anyway, so they leave these fiber wads behind, 
And uh, researchers call it browse signs that Kakapos have been browsing here. And it just reminded me of my children. Like you can tell when my children have been, <laughs> yes. <laughs> when they've been browsing in the living room, in their bedroom, because we get ants. Uh, and, yeah. Oh my gosh, in my my car. Uh, I, my oh, car, I don't even. I think my car has so much food in it yeah. from my children that the ants are even like they won't even touch it because sometimes in florida we, you can actually get ants in your car it's, yes it's, that does not happen up north but i also found it fascinating too that the kakapo has a different digestive system than in other parrots the kakapo's beach beak has an adaptation to basically allow it to grind up food in its mouth and the gizzard which is like the stomach in most birds that's usually where the food is ground up and mm-hmm. turned into smaller mm-hmm. pieces and moves on to the small intestines. But in the kakapo, the gizzard is very much so reduced in size. Uh, so, yeah, I thought that was really interesting. Um, and, yeah, it, it can store lots of fat, which yeah. is, is unique to birds. Maybe, I guess, penguins pro- and probably store a lot of fat. But Yeah, yeah, I would think so. I would think so. You know, we have to get to oh, – we got July coming up. So we'll see what ocean species we're going to cover then. One thing leading you into behavior – it's very interesting about the kakapo is how they get around because they, they do live in trees. I mean, they're not out. I mean, they're, they're ground dwelling means they are out on the ground foraging, but they, they are up in the trees quite a bit, right? Yeah. I mean, they spend the whole day there. And in fact, they're not only just like in trees, but they spend a lot of time in the crown of trees. So high up, uh, they're very, very good climbers. Uh, they have really strong legs and so out, you know, they lost the ability to fly, but they definitely adapted bigger, stronger legs and claws. And when they are on the ground, they can almost make like a jog, like a running gait to, uh, to move across the ground and they can climb up and down the trees very successfully. And then when they're not going up and down trees, they, they can cover a lot of ground during nighttime. There were there was one study that was uh, observing females during breeding and nesting. And I mean, she would return back to her nest once or twice a night, um, walking a mile each walk, running this jog like gate uh, once or twice to feed, to feed the babies and then, and then go back out and get more food. Think about so, that for a parrot. This yeah. is a parrot that that's, that's, that's can't fly. No, it just running on the ground. You yeah. Know? <laughs> so it's, that's it's, unique. Yeah, it's, it's really cool. Unique. And then, um, and then of course, when they are moving along the ground, the cockapole will hold itself kind of in a flat or like a horizontal position where its face is um, close to the closer to the ground. Uh, but if it gets alarmed or needs to see or hear something, it'll make you know stand upright in a more typical uh, parrot position. And then, as Chris mentioned, they will sometimes move from tree to tree or from the tree to the ground uh, by just jumping, more or less, <laughs> uh, and parachuting as best as they can to get from where they need to. Um, but they can climb easily up and down the tree as well. So, mm-hmm. yeah, that's uh, so in the trees during the day and then down on the ground and all around, covering lots of ground overnight. Yeah, that's they're amazing. I mean, what other behaviors? It's I know that's just there's so many because they are so unique. Oh yes, Chris. Of course, being a parrot species, uh, they're a very curious bird, uh, and on these islands, they've been known to often interact with humans. Uh, they're not necessarily shy, uh, and that they have very distinct personalities. Um, 
although they are curious to humans and interested in humans, they're, they're not really a social bird. And we'll talk about more of that during breeding. Like they really only uh, come together in these large lecking groups during uh, breeding. But there's lots of documentation of playing. Uh, young birds love to play fight with one another uh, and just kind of develop some of these skills that they'll need later on in life as adults. Uh, they are very slow to mature. So there's reports of um, male and females breeding uh, when they're three, four, five years old. But typ typically in a female, it's not going to be until they're nine years old which can be really hindering for this generation uh, interval um, in regards to their conservation. Yeah. And when it comes to communication, cockapos are definitely vocal. Um, there hasn't been documentation, to my knowledge, of them uh, talking like you would think of some of the other, the African gray parrots and stuff like that. Uh, but they make a lot of high-pitched Scraw, scrawing sounds and cracking sounds and wheezing calls. And then the male makes this incredible booming sound uh, when he uh, is in breeding season. And I'll talk about that here in a second. So the cockapo is definitely uh, has some unique vocal abilities, uh, more of which needs to be explored, I think. But uh, at this point, they're not saying, Polly, want a cracker? Or anything yeah, like that. Yeah, 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 yeah. yeah. <laughs> they've they've focused their uh, their brain power on other things. Well, I reading about their behaviors. I mean, obviously the the ground dwelling stuff was very interesting. But then when I saw the the, the lecking, like they're the only they're the only parrot that lecks. I mean, is it the only not bird? But it was like it was like wow that this species does this where a lot don't. A lot of parrot species don't. Yes, Chris. This like blew my mind. Uh, uh, the lecking behavior, uh, for those of you that aren't familiar, is where males of a certain species will get together uh, in close contact and engage in basically like a competition of courtship displays or rituals. And the whole thought behind it is that it, it brings females in, in large numbers. And then the females get to go around and pick like at a supermarket, which male <laughs> they think is, is, is the best flavor of the month, uh, that they're attracted to. So, and so the lecking behavior is, is very well known in the greater sage grouse, which we need to cover, uh, that ground dwelling bird, but it's been reported in several other bird species, um, reptiles, amphibians, mammals, uh, arthropods, insects, crustaceans. So there are a lot of species that do do this lecking behavior. Um, but it is it is still rare and fun to talk about. And like I said, for me as a behavior dork, something I would love to study or at least get my eyes on with my little observation sheets. And yeah, not only is it a congregation of a lot of birds or animals that wouldn't be all found together in the same territory, but they're just acting like a fool, yeah. <laughs> you know, <laughs> for love, a fool for love, Come not on. for, not, yeah, not for any me. unknown reason, yeah. but at any rate. So yes, the fact that cockapos have lecking behavior is incredible. And as Chris mentioned, this lecking behavior, uh, happens only anywhere from two to five years when the remu tree fruits. And so the remu is like a large evergreen coniferous tree. It's endemic to New Zealand. Um, 
it's also in the group of podocarps, which, so if you're a tree person, you'll know what that means. Um, sometimes called the red pine, but a lot of people don't use that anymore. They say rimu. But when it makes the seed, this fruit, uh, which is obviously high in calories, it really kicks off the quote unquote breeding season um, for the male and female uh, kakapos. And so to do this, the males will all come together and they will basically fight to secure the best courting area. And the way that they fight is darling. Um, They'll raise their feathers, spread their fat wings, open their beaks, show their fat feet, so raise their claws. They'll make screeching, growling noises that are very loud. Um, And they they will make contact, and they can sometimes have injuries. Um, There are reports of uh, even them, fatal injuries uh, sometimes. And what the competition does is the winner's will get the best courts, like the best areas. Now, I don't know what makes a better area more sought after than another one. I guess you have to be a, uh, uh, you know, a kakapo male to, with testosterone to understand this. But what will end up happening is when they win their little court area, they create a bowl. And so a bowl is literally what it sounds like. They dig down um, anywhere from four inches or so deep and basically enough to fit like at least half of their body in it. And they, that's like where they hang out and they, that's where they're going to do their courtship, courtship behaviors. And so once this male creates his bowl, he takes really good care of it. He cleans house. Uh, he'll make tracks of up to 50 meters um, in and out of his bowl and just make sure it's really clean and that there's no sticks or debris in it and just get, getting ready for any females that may choose to visit him. And the bowls are often created like near rocks or banks or tree trunks. And so I think those are the coveted areas. I'm just totally guessing. <laughs> Mm-hmm. And it's thought that these bowls and the location of them act as can act as like amplifiers. So if it's next to a rock, uh, it can make their vocalizations that much louder and or impressive or attractive to a female, which is a really important part part of the lecking process in male cockapos. They build the bowl, they guard the bowl, and then they make these booming noises which are very low frequency. They're below 100 hertz. In these booming calls, they do it by inflating their thora- a thoracic sac. In fact, um, another, another only cockapos do this, like we've seen throughout this whole podcast, is that male cockapos are the only parrots that have this inflatable thoracic sac um, for air which help them make this crazy, loud, booming noise. And by loud, I mean that this booming noise can be heard from one to five kilometers or three miles away if the wind is right. That's crazy. That's crazy. I mean, crazy. think of three miles yeah. from your house. Like I'm That's- thinking, okay, there's a grocery store that we go to three miles from my house. Like if a cockapo was booming in his bull during lecking season, say that five <laughs> times fast. Yes. I could hear it, right? Well, That's and- crazy. Think about this. They they live in dense forests. These forests right. around New Zealand, these native forests, I've sent you pictures and we'll post more on social media. I know I have in the past and we walked around New Zealand. They're hilly. There's tons of plants and ferns and trees. So for it to boom 
and you can hear it that far away, that is loud, really loud for a bird, really loud. And well, Chris, for me, the male kakapo wins the award for diligence because he will boom this loud booming sound continuously for up to seven hours a night (laughs) for over three to five months. He wants to make some babies. (laughs) He's motivated. He is very motivated (laughs) to attract a female to his bull. Mm -hmm. And yes, I mean, during this time, he can lose a lot of weight, uh, sometimes up to half of his body weight. So that's why it's important that he goes into the breeding season with these Rimu tree fruits, um, you know, with some chunky wings because Mm -hmm. he's just so focused on booming and lecking and taking care of his bull that uh and out competing other males that yes he uh you know he loses a lot of weight why is it the Uh, birds it's always the birds i mean i know there's other males that do mating dances and things but it's the bird the male birds put so much effort and then the females come by you you see it all the time on you know planet earth and all these animal all these new netflix shows coming out and the female's like nah i know (laughs) Like, oh my God, he just did the most elaborate thing I've ever seen in my life. Yeah. Nah. I know. And like, what is she looking for? I mean, it's just so, it's so fascinating. Birds, bird behavior. Oh, behavior. Yeah. behavior is incredible. But fast forward to a male that is successful. He does attract a female. She enters his bowl area. Then he's going to really turn on the charm. He dis- dis- uh, displays a courtship um, where he rocks from side to side. He Uh, He claps with his beak. He'll turn his back to the female, spread his little chubby wings, or maybe they're not chubby after three to four months of not eating uh, Mm -hmm. very much, Uh, but he'll spread his wings to show her. He'll walk backwards toward her, do a little bit of um, uh, moonwalking, if you will. Uh, I don't think he's that cool, but in my mind he is. Uh, And yeah, and then basically when she she stays uh, and, and doesn't run away, as Chris mentioned, um, the, they'll, they'll breed. Um, and, uh, basically once they mate, the female turns around and leaves the male and that's the end of his job, except for depending on how far along it is in during the breeding season and probably how skinny he is, uh, he'll continue booming. Uh, he, he doesn't stop there. He just keeps <laughs> it's like booming a, it's away. Like a DJ, a DJ, like doing yeah. this. Yep. Oh, just, female. Okay, stop. All right, I'm done. Da, 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 da. Next one. Exactly. <laughs> 100%. Exactly. Yep. He just wants to attract the next female. Uh, and so it's just so, so funny. Uh, but yeah, that's it. So he spends all of that energy, all of those months, all of those boom calls, thousands per night. The nice little dance. Who knows how many times he has to dance um, before he scores a female. And But that's it. That's his only contribution to parenting. So it's yeah, but it's no, an important no. one, right? Oh, so yeah, we can all, we we all we have to we have to give him that. None of us would be here if, if you know we weren't half, right. ma- half half a dad. So Angie, really quick, and before we even got started, you were talking about a a good project that you've you're you're doing some uh, ungulate behavior research, which sounds yes, very interesting. I'm back in the peripheral saddle again. We're going to go look yeah. at some grubby zebra behavior um, yeah. up uh, up at White Oak here yeah. this next week, and I'm um, helping helping assist with a pilot study because I love it there and I love grubby zebras. So and yeah. You, intru- to- you introduced me to this, to, to mm-hmm. studying herbivores behavior scientifically and, and 
stuff like that, which I found fascinating, but it's boring as all get out. You stop it, Chris. <laughs> so all they do is eat. That's what I tell you. That's beautiful. Student. The sound of munching of them, of ungulates chewing their grass. Why are you not a bird expert? Like, <laughs> study this leg <laughs> behavior. Well, like, how fun is that? I mean, I, pr- I probably would do things differently now after having all know, this exposure. Me too. Me too. Oh, my gosh. Yeah, me too. I'd, I'd stick the ocean. I'd, I'd just, uh, I'd, I'd be studying ocean. I, I don't know. I'm glad I do what I do. I mean, we, we understand physiology. We understand science and all that genetics and biochemistry we needed. But still, like when you're talking behavior and, and then you were talking about going to do these crappy zebras, I'm like, why aren't you coming here to study Kakapo and, you know, the Kia and how intelligent they are and design some be- behavioral studies with that. So. I'll get you guys moved down here at some point. I was going to say, on, find, somebody to, find somebody to pay me. <laughs> and John. I'll get John yeah. a zoo job yeah. down here. Yeah. So, yeah, it's interesting. But, yeah, so they – okay, so here we go. She's pregnant. She goes and lays her eggs. What happens? Mm-hmm. Yep, on? so um, the female, she has a nest, uh, and it is in the ground. And I was thinking about that, and I'd love a bird expert on here uh, – I understand that they are on the ground, but I wish she would put her bird nest in trees. Well, there's no reason to. There's no reason to. There was no reason to until predators moved in. A thousand years ago, there was no reason to. I know, darn it. And so, good, yeah. But uh, she'll make a deep burrow under boulders or between tree roots, and she tries to conceal it. Um, And she's very faithful about incubating her eggs. But because there is no male parental care, the female does have to leave those eggs unattended every night to search for food, right? During incubation. And that's, and the eggs are incubated for 30 days. So they might get snatched, uh, things like that, or they, uh, before they move to the islands, of course. Uh, and I should mention too, that a kakapo female will usually lay about one to two eggs. And, um, after a month, the chicks will hatch. Uh, they're very altricial, so um, they're covered in like white grayish down, uh, but their skin's really pink, and it's easy to see their their eyes are closed, and they're just you know they're very dependent on mom. They get their feathers by about seventy days, and it takes around three and a half months or so for the kakapo chicks to be ready to leave the nest, and the juvenile kakapo. Um, Coloration is going to be somewhat duller green than the adults um, and a little bit different with the the black and yellow bars that are present in their feathers. Uh, they do have shorter tails and wings and beaks as well when they're younger. It takes them a while to mature, as I mentioned. I think that's a really, really key point for their conservation. Uh, I mean, once again, there's reports of females not breeding until they're 9 to 11 years of age. Um, and so, uh, and then when they're only breeding anywhere from three to five years, one chick, and then that chick is vulnerable to predators and just, just life in general. So how much, how many chicks actually make it to adulthood? I read maybe there's like 60%, uh, that might be better now in some of the more, um, uh, more con- conservation, uh, islands that they're on where they're being a little bit more protected. So, yeah, I mean, when yeah. we talk about having their numbers rebound, it, it's 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 not going to be overnight. There's no. just no way. Very, no, very, very, no. very slow generation in- interval. I guess where they're looking at different strategies too. You know, if we can put them play, I, and I don't know. Yeah, I, yeah. I talked. I'd like to talk to an expert, but you know, placing them 
at safe havens on the mainland or other islands where there's less competition, you know, when she's hunt, you know, when she's, (laughs) she's shopping for, you know, daddy, it's not 50 males, but you know, she's got a small handful to pick. Right. Right. And then she can make a decision. Yeah. I want to breed with him and Mm -hmm. hopefully we can propagate them, you know, at a quicker rate than they are now. Yeah, then there then there was an issue too with their sex ratio for a while, um, where there was just mostly males, and a lot of that researchers think was due to diet. When they are um, on some of these conservation islands and stuff, they're supplemented to help make sure that they stay alive and are healthy. But the thought is this whole um, it's called sex allocation evolutionary theory, where when um, a female ha- is has enough resources or plentiful, or she is chubby or uh, in times of good eating that she'll produce male offspring. And um, whereas if her nutrition and her resources are a little less uniform and less consistent uh, and she's underweight, that the body will recognize that and um, produce female offspring. And so uh researchers took this to heart and um, they didn't, you know, they, they didn't completely stop supplementing the diets of, of these, you know, critically endangered birds that they had been studying on these conservation islands, but they did make, make sure to not overfeed them. And yeah. they actually, uh, since they've been doing that, they've been getting more of a 50, 50 sex yeah. ratio split. Yeah. So, yeah. so that's good. And that's why when we talk about like, con- you know, research being so critical from all, all different angles from nutrition to genetics to translocation to cortisol and hormones to mm-hmm. disease. Mm-hmm. Oh my gosh, this poor kakapo uh, is, you know, a, a, a population with a bottleneck effect, yeah. right? Uh, yeah, you massive. know, with, with the, you know, with issues that come with bottleneck species and starting and having such like a low population number and then, and then, and then breeding and breeding and breeding them is they're, Genetic diversity isn't low, uh, much lower than where we'd want it to be. And so, you know, a single disease or something can like wipe them out. So, yeah, there's a lot. And that's why we need to study them and make sure that they don't get diseases. And so, yeah, it's just it's 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 a really tough, hard conservation fight for these birds. But I'm just so in love and applauding. Um, the New Zealanders, the Kiwis for their efforts um, and the strides that they have made for the kakapo. It, it really is a, like you said, it, it's um, a really feel good story and a really, uh, I mean, just really setting the stage for how other countries, especially island nations could and should help, uh, help uh, keep their critically endangered species, endangered species alive and thriving. Yeah. No, and the public support is massive here for it. So, you know, uh, you know, the people here really are supporting, you know, preserving New Zealand wildlife and our wild spaces here and our wild species and native species. So it has very strong public support, which helps support policy. So then the politicians can feel emboldened. Okay, well, this is important to the people and they sell it too. And so that's where our department of conservation has done, you know, an outstanding job saving this animal, saving this species uh, from the brink. 
because they absolutely. are critically endangered. You know? Yeah, critically endangered. absolutely. Critically endangered. They are not out of the woods yet, not even close. Uh, but yeah, New Zealanders, uh, the government, researchers, the community there has been really fighting for these birds. And and, and it is, I, I do think when we revisit the species in five years or whenever, I think we're going to have even more good news to report. I'm very, very hopeful. Uh, and a lot of that has to do with the Kakapo Recovery Project, um, which is my organization of the week. And they can be found at www.doc.gov. Well, I'll just have Chris put the, yes. <laughs> put the, put the website Department on the show notes. Yeah, it's very long. Yeah. Uh, or you can just Google Kakapo Recovery Program. But it's awesome. It uh, basically combines scientists rangers, volunteers, and donors to protect the critically endangered Kakapo. Uh, and they have a wonderful group on Facebook that I love um, called Kakapo Recovery. So check them out. If you are in New Zealand or even not New Zealand like myself, there's several ways you can get involved and we'll put that on our show notes as well. But they have volunteer opportunities. You can help with funding. If you have own a business, you can help uh, raise money and support. So there's just a lot that you can do, um, whether you are local in New Zealand, which would be super cool on the ground, but mm -hmm. even just from far away with a few clicks of your mouse and, uh, you know, help them financially, uh, especially as Chris mentioned, if they want to continue to grow this population, they're going to need to move to uh, the mainland and help protect them there. Uh, and that's not going to be cheap. No. And if that happens, I will be wherever they're at. <laughs> yes. <laughs> listening, yes. 100%. Listening to those, uh, those males uh, booming. Uh, boom, 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 boom. And it doesn't yeah. like that. It's more like, I, I I would play it, but it was actually uh, so low frequency. It's almost to our ears. It's I mean, you can hear it, but it's very like yeah, very low. Like you could probably do it with your male voice a little bit better than me. Um, but yeah, it's, it's low and deep, but still beautiful. <laughs> I can't do, make four miles. Sorry, <laughs> whatever it That's was, true. <laughs> three miles away. No, 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 no. Well, you know, the conservation tip of the week. I, talking about that, the Kakapo Recovery Project does have Kakapo bird cams uh, they're, they're turned off now because the uh, the fledglings have left the nest but they were on and people were, were very much it was it was all in social media here where we were watching the kakapo uh birds you know and the the them hatch and everything so support bird cams like go out and look you know there's eagle cams and you know in your neck of the woods this year i mean it's may so most birds have probably hatched right they've la they've laid their eggs and yes and even the flood most fledgling have have fledged uh, fledged, yeah uh, mm -hmm. yeah so when, when they're around you know support bird camps share them share this podcast you know uh, it, it's just funny it's it's living down here in this end of the world you know pretty far from angie you know it's like remember we talked about la nina a few months back like i i we're feeling the effects of la nina we're like in this drought right now and but australia is getting hammered with rain and it, just all of this in the podcast that we talk about you know i guess my point is go outside enjoy where you live in the world you know nature and conservation begins in your backyard uh, look up, start watching birds if you haven't, you know, and, and start enjoying it and, and, and let that energize you so you can fight and just spread the knowledge. You know, you don't have to make a career out of it, but social media, share it with your friends, tell these stories, talk about the Kakapo, 
you know, come see me in New Zealand. Send us an email, allcreaturespod at gmail.com. Tell us your stories. But, you know, if you, if you come to New Zealand and you want to go meet up at the sanctuary and go bird watching or wherever you are in this country, you know, in the North Island, you know, I'll try to meet up with you. Uh, but we can, we, we're in this together, I guess is what I'm trying to say. So we are definitely, it, it takes a village and all of us are conservation heroes by listening to this podcast. You're doing your part. And if a lot of what we're saying, uh, gets that felt fire going in your belly, there's more you can do. And it doesn't have to be being, you know, a field biologist or a zookeeper. There's, there's so many different ways to help. And I, um, through social media and email, uh, talked with a lot of people each week and give, and, and we, we just have this network going and, and, and talk about ways to help. I, I send them articles from, from Google scholar cause I have access to those and, uh, if they need them and, uh, we, 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 talk about how to be a better board member at their local zoo. And mm-hmm. we talk about uh, career, like, well, what should I do with my career? And so anyways, definitely reach out to us. Let us know if you have a favorite species you want us to cover. Uh, definitely check out our Facebook, All Creatures podcast group. Uh, we share a lot of articles in there and just get excited about animals and conservation, the good and, and the bad, because uh, the good excites us. And then in the bad kind of gets that fire going in our belly and, and makes us want to fix it and help in any way we can. And so, yeah, I mean, nature and animals are where it's at. So uh, let's let's keep working together. Absolutely. Absolutely. Well, thank you for listening. I, we've got, we've, we're getting to our list. We've got a good list of, of species coming in July. We've got plastic free July. So we'll really focus on the ocean. We have a couple big species on there that I cannot wait to cover. Uh, so just stay tuned and thank you for listening and supporting us. All those five-star reviews. I did read them the other day on iTunes. I just was overwhelmed and I was like, Oh, I just want to see, you know, if we had any new, new reviews. So thank you. It, it really, it, it helps drive us. So, so please keep, keep the comments coming, the emails coming. Uh, thank you so much. Thank you, everyone. Listen, learn, share. Join the movement at allcreaturespod.com.